That's a good song. <clears throat> that has a great message to it, don't it? Wow, it's good. Well, amen. Let's take our Bibles, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Again, we <clears throat> introduced our new, uh, new uh, theme this past year, uh, for this coming year, I should say, Soul Purpose. And um, we began our series uh, last week, and we went back to the beginning, we said, <clears throat> as we're going to note here in just a moment. You have to forgive me, my voice is giving me trouble today, it's all my fault by the way. I, uh, I, I had on my McDonald's app a free sausage egg, and a sausage egg and a something, cheese biscuit or something like that, or a McMuffin, and it was free, you don't have to pay for it, it's free. The only problem was you have to buy a drink. Now normally I use the get a free drink and get the $2.50 deal. But I figure I'd save a few dollars. The only problem is they've raised the price of the sweet tea now. It's no longer a dollar. I know better than to do this, but I would not pay more than a dollar for a drink. And so I had to get a Coke. Now my throat's messed up. I never drink pop before I preach or the day of. Because it messes my throat up, and I thought, oh, it'll be at 7 in the morning. It'll be no big deal. I'll be fine by 11. I guess it would have been worth the extra 50 cents. <clears throat> but I just couldn't bring myself to pay it. So we'll work on that, okay? I'll maybe just water next time if I get that free one. <laughs> if, on, I don't need to go into that. Okay, but anyway... <clears throat> I just want to try to save you a few dollars, you know, you, you, whatever. The free drink includes the sweet tea, by the way. So anyway, there we go. Acts chapter 1. This is what you're dealing with as you listen to me today. <laughs> Penny Pincher. Here we go. <clears throat> Acts chapter 1, verse 4. For three years now, the disciples have traveled with the Lord Jesus Christ. They witnessed many miracles. They heard many messages. They acquired many memories. But the cross has ended life as they'd known it. Amidst the darkness, the light sprang forth. Amen? And three days and three nights later, the Lord Jesus Christ raised from the dead. He'd spend 40 days interacting with his disciples and giving some parting instructions. It was now time for him to return to heaven. We begin reading in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. The Bible says, And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, You've heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It's not for you to know the times nor the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. When he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, 
as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you, uh, taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. I focus our attention today. We want to look at this particular passage. We note that in first in the, the book, the first chapter of Acts, they're told to remain in Jerusalem while they waited for the Holy Spirit to descend. He assures them that it wouldn't be long before he did indeed come. The disciples, of course, they asked about the kingdom. God makes sure that they understand that it's not for you to know the time of that kingdom. I know you're planning on and hoping to rule and reign with me. And certainly, according to the Old Testament, I indeed am going to establish the kingdom. I'm certainly going to rule and reign on the throne of David. I will definitely elevate Israel among all the nations. And you will be by my side. Without a doubt, it's going to happen, but not now. It's not for you to know now. But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. The Lord had ascended back to heaven, and he left the disciples with a promise, and he left them with a command. The promise? You're going to receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. The command? Ye shall be witnesses unto me. And from our Lord's last command, we arrive at our new theme. He commands them to be witnesses. I mean, what an undertaking, what a responsibility, and yet what a great privilege it is to be able to proclaim the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, to reach out to the lost and to see them come to him. Even as he came to seek and to save that which was lost, he now passes down the baton of responsibility to you and I. And he says, listen, you have a soul purpose. And it is a little bit of a play on words, obviously. Purpose of our existence is to reach the world. He left us to do what he came to do, to seek and to save that which was lost. He told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We have a soul purpose but what we also learn as we consider this play on words is that his last command should be our first priority. Hey, Christ was all about souls and he passes that soul purpose on to us. And as the darkness of unbelief grips our nation, as sin infects the masses, as death takes hold on the lost, the believer in which the Spirit of God dwells must be more convinced than ever that Christ is the only answer to the sin-sick world in which we live, that our nation has no hope outside of Jesus Christ, and that we must indeed return to our sole purpose. It is not enough to discuss it. It's not enough to talk about it. It's not enough to even pray about it. We've got to put some feet to prayers, and we've got to get out there and knock them doors. We've got to get out there and pass out those tracts. We've got to get out there and reach the world with the gospel if indeed we want to see his purpose and plan fulfilled. And ye shall be witnesses unto me. Although our theme was derived or comes from Acts chapter 1 verse 8, we noted that that isn't where it all began. So we went back to the beginning. We went back to Genesis chapter 1. And we noted that when God's perfect work was marred by sin as a result of the fall of man, his Sabbath rest was broken. 
He had finished his creative work and now he rests. And yet, the moment that man falls into sin, he goes back to work again, this time to redeem fallen man. A work of redemption, a work of restoration, he begins. He turns his attention to restoration and redemption and he provides right off the bat, he begins to outline for us the way back. And we see that it requires a sacrifice and blood. We know that Jesus Christ would ultimately come and he'd pay the sin penalty for all the world. He would cry out, it is finished. What a purpose. What a soul purpose. This week we see God at work. And that's what we're going to consider today. God at work redeeming fallen man. We've gone back to Genesis. Now we're going to walk through the Bible slightly. We're going to take a little journey. And we're going to note that God indeed had a purpose to restore fallen man. And so with that said, let's pray and then we'll move forward in our service today. Father, we come to you. We thank you for this time together. And we just want to ask you to show up today. Or we'd be wasting our time to hear a mere man. We need to hear from you, the master. Oh, Holy Ghost of God, we pray that you would walk aisles, that you would convict us, that you would convince us of our great need of you. Whether we're saved or lost, we need the Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign in our lives. Father, fill me with your spirit and guide my tongue and stand in my shoes and allow me to be your mouthpiece. I pray, Lord, that you'd be with every listening ear and anoint the ears that we might hear with spiritual ears and ultimately hide thy word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Father, we desperately need you today. We commit this service into your hands. We ask that you do your perfect work in our imperfect lives May you be glorified. You're so worthy of our glory, so worthy of our praise. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Although Adam and Eve had sinned, God had to, and God had to remove them from the garden. He had to keep his word. We know that. And, and, and as we mentioned even, if you really think about it, him removing them from the garden was an act of mercy. Because in that garden, they would have been able to eat of the tree of the knowledge, uh, eat of the tree of the, uh, excuse me, um, wow, the tree of life. There you go. We're so, I'm so focused on the, in soul winning, we always talk about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Wait, whatever, you know what I'm trying to say. That, that pops going to my brain too, not just my throat. I must be on a uh, caffeine, thank you. Can anybody tell me what my name is now? <laughs> but anyway... I mean, to tell you honestly, we, he, it was an act of mercy to, to remove them from the garden. I can't imagine living in a perpetual state of sin. And yet as he removes them, as he removes them from the garden, he provides them with an opportunity to restore their fellowship, to once again fellowship with him, and he provides them with skins, the Bible says. And we know that those skins had to come from animals, and those animals, therefore, had to have died as a sacrifice, if you will, in order to provide them with the skins needed to cover their nakedness, their shame. And that meant blood had to have been shed. We see right off the bat that God begins his work of redemption by providing a sacrifice and blood. 
Adam and Eve would be removed from the garden and they would have children, two children, one by the name of Cain, the other by the name of Abel. I'm sure there were other children, but we are focusing on these two. It's the ones that the Bible focuses on. And if you would, please turn to Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read five verses and we're going to catch up with Cain and Abel. Once again, these are a, this is a popular account. It's one that we know much about. And yet, it's important to realize that God has begun His work, His redemptive work, His restoring work. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man-child, a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of his of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the the Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very raw, and his countenance fell. We're told here in the passage that both Cain and Abel brought a sacrifice or an offering, if you will, to the Lord. Abel was a rancher. Cain basically was a farmer. Both brothers brought their very best to the Lord. Cain, the fruit of the ground. Abel, of his herd, or the lamb, a lamb. God would have respect on Abel's offering, but to Cain's, he had no respect. That means that God accepted Abel's, but he did not accept Cain's. Cain was offended that God would not accept his offering. I mean to tell you, Cain had worked just as hard as Abel. Cain had put just as much effort into producing a good crop as Abel did producing a big herd. And for God not to accept his offering angered him and it made him upset. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, the Bible says, And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, thou shalt be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. It's been said as we look into the passage and we try to break down the, 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 the words and understand the meaning of the passage that he's implying that there's a sin offering. There's a, a, a way back to God, a way to please God. And it's through an offering, an offering like Abel's. Again, Cain was invited by God to come the right way, Abel's way, if you will. It was really God's way to bring the only kind of sin offering that God can accept, and that is blood. And ultimately, that would be the Lord Jesus Christ today. The difference between Cain and Abel, between the believer and the righteous person, lies between not so much the person, (laughs) but the object of their trust. What are they depending upon? What are they leaning on? What are they placing their hope in? The one provides for themselves. We saw in the book of Romans chapter 10, even today in Sunday school, particularly, again, your, your, your teachers may or may not have touched this specifically, but we saw that they went about trying to establish their own righteousness. 
And Paul, brokenhearted for the Jews, says, I want to see them saved, but until they realize it won't be their righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ, they're never going to be saved. And in this particular case, God had begun his work of redemption, of redeeming fallen man, of bringing them back into fellowship with him, and it always requires blood. Years ago when I was in Germany, and I've told the story here, it might have been years ago, it may have been just yesterday based on what I'm dealing with now. (laughs) But I remember in Germany, when I'd ride there, I I played a little bit of guitar, and and, and a couple of the guys in the barracks, they had guitars, and man, I need to tell you, I thought, man, now that's what I need to do. I need to get me a guitar, and I can strum that guitar at night and stuff, and I can create lullabies, and I could do all that good stuff, create songs and do all the stuff I like to do because I was always liking to make songs and all that stuff. And, 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 and so I decided to go out and look for a guitar. Man, I found my way to a music store there in Nuremberg, Germany. And I, I walked on in and I began to look around at the guitars. And of course, they, they asked me in German what I wanted to look at. And a, a, one of them knew a little bit of English, so he, I was able to communicate in English. And I said, I'm looking for a guitar. You know, I want something that's going to be pretty nice, but I don't have a ton of money, but I want it to be a good one and, and uh, as best it possibly can for the price. He can, he can just show me a few guitars. I find one that I really like. I think it's in my price range. It's the perfect guitar for me. Man, I take that guitar, I strum on it, and man, they're like, they're amazed at how bad I was. But anyway, I'm strumming on that guitar, and, 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 and I'm thinking, this is it, this is it. And I put it back down, I said, all right. I look at the price on it, and of course, in a German store, it's going to be marked in marks. That's their currency, the mark. At least that's what it was in the day when I was younger. And so the, the Deutschmark, and it said a certain amount on there, and I remember going to the gentleman, and I said, pulled out my wallet, and I said, now listen, I don't have marks, I have dollar bills, but we can exchange it, we'll have an exchange rate. I'll even give you a little bit more, per, you know, for every dollar, I'll give you a little bit more Deutschmark, Deutschmarks than, than what maybe I'm supposed to, but that's all right, all I have is dollar bills. And he said, sorry, we don't accept dollar bills. And I said, What? You talk about, we're, I'm, I'm an American. In those days, you was allowed to be proud of it. I, I'm an American. Man, I got dollar bills, man. I got, I got the real stuff. This is it right here. I said, I'm, yeah, listen, what, what, come on. He said, nine, nine. I'm like, I said, wait a second. If I go around the corner to another store, I almost guarantee you they'll accept dollar bills. They'll accept it and they'll just exchange it right there. He said, go, go get Deutschmarks. I said, I don't want to get Deutschmarks. I got American dollars. I want to buy the guitar. I want to leave with the guitar now. Man, I'm going to tell you what. I tried to reason with that guy. I debated with that guy. I tried to convince him any way possible that he just needed to accept the American dollar. But you know what he kept saying? Nine Deutschmarks, nine, Deutschmarks, nine, Deutschmarks. I'm like, whatever. I finally just left that store. You know, that's a picture of the coming judgment. And that's what Cain shows us when he deals with God as well. There will be no reasoning with God. There'll be no amount of complaining that'll make any difference 
All that's going to matter is God's standard and his conditions. There's going to be no escaping the wrath of God unless you provide him with what he demands. I'm so glad that he made provision for mankind. I'm glad that he made the redeeming of man his business, a sole purpose. And with Cain's frustration mounting and his anger growing, his heart becomes bitter. The root of that bitterness toward God and man turns to hatred. That root of bitterness does. And sadly, Cain would not humble himself before God and instead he kills his brother. God provided a means by which fallen man could approach him. And it was the blood. We see that back there in the Garden of Eden, right from the very beginning, God had begun his redemptive work, his restoration work. And here he is trying to redeem Paul and man, bring him back into fellowship with him. And it always requires a sacrifice. It always requires the blood. Satan is forever trying to sabotage God's efforts. Especially his effort to redeem and restore it. As we move forward in the Bible, we're introduced to a society that had abandoned God and embraced sin and every evil. In Genesis chapter 6, we see God at work again. The inhabitants of the earth had grown cold and indifferent toward God. Their hearts had abandoned righteousness and they had embraced evil. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the Bible says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Man, the situation had grown so ugly, so bad, so desperate, that God himself repented of the fact that he created man, regretted the fact that he had made man. It's pretty bad, isn't it? You know what? You know what's sad? I've known parents that regretted having a child because that child was so wicked. Wouldn't it be sad for you as a young person to be so disrespectful and un, 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 ungrateful that your parents would say, man, I, I just wish you could get out of here. I wish I could just get rid of you. You say, no parent would ever feel that way. Really? Don't put your parents in that spot. Be obedient. Do what they ask. Do what they say. You say, well, I'm supposed to be loved unconditionally. Well, don't try to test it then. Don't go around trying to prove that they're what they're supposed to be. You just be what you're supposed to be. God got fed up. You say, that would never happen. Well, it's funny. We're in the image of God, aren't we? So I guess there's things we could love that we might repent of too in that sense. I'm just throwing it out there. It just seems to be biblical to me. I'm not saying it happens that often, and I hope it doesn't. But sadly enough, these kind of things happen. Of all the inhabitants of the earth, Noah stood out among them all, however. He's described in verse 9. Noah, a just man. A, he's perfect in his generations. And one that walked with God. We only ever see that phrase used another time in chapter 5. We saw it with a man by the name of Enoch. Now we read about it with Noah. What a marvelous testimony that Noah had. 
I mean, you think about the living conditions. You consider how dark the day was, and yet he had a testimony of being a just man, a perfect in his generations, and walking with God. Well, preacher, you know it's almost impossible today to live for the Lord. It's not, it doesn't happen. I don't know anybody that's really sold out for Jesus anymore. Really? You mean it can't happen? Or it just doesn't happen? Because we see that Noah made it happen. And it wasn't just a matter of Noah being one of many that knew Christ. No, it was the fact that Noah stood alone in the world in which he lived. I mean, literally alone. You say, what about his wife and kids? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say that they landed in that same area of testimony. What I do know is he did. And what I do know is that everybody else perished but his wife, his three sons, and their wives. Everybody. You know, when Elijah sits up on the hill and says, I'm the only one. Lord, I'm the only one that loves you. I'm the only one that hasn't bowed a knee. He says, you're nuts. 7,000 more that haven't. And we go through life sometimes, woe is me. I'm the only one standing at work. I'm the only one that loves Jesus Christ. Even at the church, I'm the only one that's really legit. Everybody else is fake. Everybody else is phony. I'm the only one. Really? That's not true. Now, you can go ahead and play the little violin. You can go ahead and feel sorry for yourself. You can feel somehow that serving Jesus is such a burden that you have to whine about it to him and everybody else. But my friend, there is nothing better than being a Christian and living for Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Genesis 6, 11, the earth also was corrupt before God and all the earth was filled with violence and God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. I like that statement, had corrupted his way. I know it's not a capital H, but I often wonder, did they corrupt God's way or did they corrupt their own way? I kind of think it's a little bit of both. But that word corrupt means to waste to spoil or consume, to defile or pollute. First of all, it's very clear that sin always wastes, it always spoils, and it always consumes. Sin never wants just a piece of your life, it wants all of it. And to separate sin and Satan is really not a very good thing to do because the fact is, is that sin itself is who he's all about and what he's all about and who he is. And I want you to understand that sin is never content having a piece of you. It wants all of you. Just like Jesus the Savior wants all of you, sin wants all of you. And he wants all of me too. When society is corrupt, it is defiled and polluted with sin. And violence is the natural outworking. You say, we have such a lawless society today. It's because we have a sinful society. The earth was so corrupt and violent that God again was determined to do away with it. That's how bad it was. <clears throat> we stand around today and say, well, if God doesn't come back soon, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. He don't have to apologize to nobody anytime. And my friend, if you knew the Bible, you'd understand that that's much worse in Genesis 6 than it is even this moment. Man, are who we kidding? We love to feel like we're the martyrs for Christ that we're supposed to be. But I'm telling you, we still live in a grand day, a wonderful day in which we have the opportunity to proclaim the light of the Lord Jesus Christ to a dark and dying world. We are so blessed today. 
Yeah, we live in a crazy society, a changing society, a lawless society, a corrupt and violent society, but we have the hope of Christ in us. There's been much talk and even debate concerning pollution over the last 30 years. You know, we've enacted laws, regulated businesses in an attempt to address pollution in our, uh, 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 this issue of pollution. Our schools have spearheaded environmental causes. Uh, many activist groups have, de- have demanded change. And all of it being done with the intent, of course, of preserving our world or keeping it from being wasted, spoiled, or consumed, keeping it from being corrupted. And although these efforts may be considered admirable, I believe that many of those efforts have served as more of a distraction from the greatest corrupted force on the planet, and that's sin. The pollution of sin is something that has been recorded over millenniums, and its devastation has been documented throughout the ages. There's no doubt. You don't have to, you can't just, you don't have to just go back 50 or 100 years. You can go back to the beginning of time and see the devastation of sin. Matter of fact, the Bible talks about it in Romans chapter 8 and says that the earth itself groaneth. The earth is hurting and, and horribly uh, uh, affected by sin itself. Not just the globe itself, but then every inhabitant and every aspect of the creation is affected negatively. We see evidence of that every day of our lives. Wherever sin is permitted to reign, it's caused the downfall of nations, the breakdown of the home, a decline in decency, an increase in violence and crime, a myriad of injustices, and in its wake, a flood of sorrow, a tornado of wrecked and ruined lives, and every ill that scourges our world, a direct result of the pollution or the corruption of sin. If only our government, our educators, our corporates, corporations were as concerned about sin as they are about our carbon footprint. We'd find, we wouldn't find ourselves in such a deplorable condition today. I, I'm, not a, I'm not in any way opposed to caring for the world that God gave us to live in. But I am so saddened to see us investing billions and billions of dollars in something that will ultimately be burned up, according to the Bible, when the souls of men and women, boys and girls, will forever perish Boy, it's sad to hear about a particular animal species disappearing simply because of willful neglect. But even more alarming is the disappearance of truth and the willful abandonment of the Word of God, which places the human race in condemnation. That's even worse. The death of a particular species is tragic, but sin is killing all of humanity. Every single human being is going to perish in a place called hell or the lake of fire, if you will. That's a sad reality of, 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 of this thing called sin. But sin having ravaged the world, God commissioned Noah. He said, you build an ark, an ark wherein you and your family will be protected in order to preserve the human race. Now, honestly, <clears throat> the Bible tells us that he preached 120 years. I believe God gave a bona fide offer to the world. You want to come on, be a part of this? You can join in. You can come be a part of it. Come get on the ark with everybody else. 
I don't believe God just simply said, you preach, but don't really offer them anything. Just tell them how bad it's going to be. They're all going to die. There's no room for repentance. Only you and your family, only you will be the ones that are allowed on the ark. I believe they're the only ones got on the ark, but I don't think God ever would. He would have loved if somebody would have turned to him. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But he tells him, make thee an ark of gopher wood, rooms that shall... Uh, that sh- shalt thou make it in the ark and shalt pitch it within and without with a pitch. It's, again, he preached 120 years according to 2 Peter 2.5. The Bible says, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness. He was a preacher. Noah wasn't just an ark builder, he was a preacher. Noah stood out there, as he, I can see him climbing up on the bow of that ark, getting standing up over the people. Repent! 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 We don't say those words today much. That's a little uncomfortable, isn't it? Turn from your sin and be saved! But I got to turn from my sin. I can't just accept Jesus. Oh, preacher, what, 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 what? You're throwing works in there now. You believe whatever you want. Let me tell you something. You don't come to Christ one way, and leave the same. He'll change your life. And if you don't have a desire, you don't recognize what sin did by placing him on the cross, you don't understand what sin's doing to our world, you can't see what sin has done to damn you to hell. My friend, you know what? You're going to have a hard time getting saved because you have no need to be saved unless you believe that's where you're going to spend it. You better be willing to turn from that sin. Turn from the sin of selfishness, righteousness, self-righteousness. They sought to establish their own righteousness. That's what every man, every boy, every girl, every woman does. We seek to establish our own righteousness before God. You better repent of that. You better recognize Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life. You and I have to do that. Salvation isn't works. But let's be honest. People have gotten crazy on all this stuff. Well, you say that you, you have to ask Christ into your heart. Well, that's a work. You people are out of your minds. Why don't you decide to live separated from, God, from the world as much as you're making a big issue of something like that? Get out there and knock a door and lead somebody to Jesus instead of complaining about things. Get, on, get, get working for God. Get busy about your sole purpose. This stuff's ridiculous. We fight over the stupidest things amongst believers. Dumb stuff. Man, we got a job to do. This is de- degrading. It's, it's, it's going the wrong direction. I'm going to get back on track. We're going, to, we're going to close in just a few moments, but he preached repentance. His message fell on deaf ears. Nobody wanted to admit that they had to change. Nobody had to admit that Jesus, that God was the one they had to follow. We're going to do things our way. Well, it didn't end well. So what did the Bible say? He preached repentance. His message fell on deaf ears. And then the Lord said to Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee I have seen righteous before me in this generation. And the Bible says in verse 16, And they went in, went in male and female of all flesh, and God commanded him, and the, as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. You know, it's funny, you know, we, I, I don't think this, ha- I, I mean, I honestly, I, I don't know, but 
I don't know if they had a rope connected to the door, and they went like this, and it went. Close her up, boys. I don't know if that's how it went. Sounds to me like God did it. That's what it seems like to me, at least. The way it's worded, it seems that God's the one that went up there and said, here, let me just use my little pinky finger. Boom. Shut that door. I'm going to shut you inside so secure, so safe, Noah, you and your family, that there is no wrath of mine that will ever, ever touch you. God was doing his work of redemption. God was doing his work of restoration. And it's interesting, too, as you read down through the passage, you realize that God did something also that was funny. He, he told them to bring seven clean animals onto the ark, but only two unclean. <clears throat> Wait a second. Why seven clean and only two unclean? That doesn't make sense, does it? Unless there would still be a requirement of what? A sacrifice and blood. Isn't that interesting? Not just for that year that they'd be on the ark, but as they parted, from then on, it would continue as well. We see God at work. <laughs> and boy, there's coming a day when the wrath of God will be poured out upon the earth. Can I tell you, you believe whatever you want about this too, but I'm telling you now, I won't, step, I won't put one foot into that tribulation. Not one. You go through it if you like. That's your, go ahead. I'm not. Man, I'm telling you what, he's going to seal me up so good with the Holy Spirit that the moment he returns, boom, I'm gone, safe. I'll never experience the wrath of God ever because of my faith into the Lord Jesus Christ. And neither will you if you've put your faith in him. Don't bind all this stuff. You get on that internet and you start searching, you know what you're going to find? Even Baptists today running around going, well, you're going to have to go through half the tribulation. Mid-trib. You're going to have to go through till the end. Hey, I'm not going to argue with you. There's, there's definitely a resurrection at the end of the tribulation. <clears throat> but it ain't the church. <clears throat> have no problem with that. You better rightly divide the scriptures. But I'm going to tell you this much, that you will be sealed. <laughs> and boy, the moment you got saved, in a sense, you were sealed. Not by your power, not by your ability or, or mine, not by being good enough, not even by saying a simple prayer. That prayer didn't save you. Your heart to God saved you. That inner man reaching out, crying out to God, confessing Him, the Lord Jesus, for who He is. Man, saved, sealed, and safe. That's God at work. That's God at work. We could take time to talk about Abraham and Isaac. As we... Consider them very, very briefly. We'll not have time to go into it. We're going to recognize that as they make their way onto that mount, that God's still at work. And there goes Isaac, and there goes Abraham up a hill. They got everything they need for a sacrifice except a sacrifice. Isaac, being a pretty smart kid, he says, hey, Dad, we got everything we need but one. He said, what's that, son? A sacrifice. 
God will provide himself a sacrifice. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? God will provide himself a sacrifice. Hmm. That's interesting. He says, and Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them together. God will provide himself a lamb. Interesting, a lamb, a lamb. And then we go through the word of God and we recognize something very important, that that particular passage, along with what transpires and takes place on that mount, point to somebody much, much, points to a much bigger picture than we ever first imagined. It points to Jesus Christ, who is the lamb of God, which is going to take away the sin of the world. And Abraham gets ready to slay his son in obedience to God. And God says, hold it. But you told me to hold it. Look behind you. A ram caught in the thicket. Goes, grabs that lamb, throws it up there on that altar. That lamb, that ram, he calls it, but it's... (laughs) There goes the sacrifice and there's the blood picturing the Lamb of God that would one day take away the sin of the world. He provided himself a lamb and who's himself? God himself. See, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. In Isaiah 53, the Bible says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. God provided himself. Literally, God himself came came to earth and became a man. And there he lived a perfect, sinless life. And he placed himself on the altar, if you will. And he allowed himself to be crucified by his own creation. And there he died, shedding his precious, perfect blood to pay the penalty of sin on your behalf and mine. (laughs) What a wonderful transaction. A grotesque transaction, but wonderful nonetheless. And today, we see through that entire Old Testament, as we look back, we see God at work, redeeming and restoring mankind, fulfilling a soul purpose. And that is the soul purpose that he extended to you and I before he left. He passed the baton on to you and I to share the truth of the gospel, the crucified Christ with the world. Paul, until Israel recognizes they cannot go about establishing their own righteousness, they're going to perish. Paul says, okay, God, I'll make sure they know it. And in Acts chapter 10, he reminds them. And then it is recorded for us through history so that we now can look back and say, you're trying to obtain righteousness 
of yourselves. It'll never work. Today, you may be without Christ. You may be in your sin because you are a sinner just like I am. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's not saying you're a bad person in the world. It's saying that in light of a holy, perfect, righteous God, none of us is considered good. We can't compare to him. He's so perfect, holy, righteous, so high and lifted up. I can't do anything to earn his favor. I can only fall on my face and humble myself and beg his mercy and ask him for forgiveness and to come into my life to apply his payment to my account. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Today, maybe you've never called upon the Lord to save your soul, to forgive your sin. You need to settle that today. Don't leave here trying to do enough to earn his favor. You can't. I can't. None of us can. The only one that ever lived a life that would be worthy of righteous, the righteousness or worthy of God's approval would be God himself who became a man. Jesus, who lived this perfect, sinless life, the God-man. Outside of him, no, none of us can do that. That's why he came. Will you trust Christ today? Will you just stop depending on yourself and say, you know what? I can't do it. I need Jesus. Ooh, now there sounds like a repentant attitude to me. Now that's turning from self. That's turning from the sin of self-righteousness. That's recognizing that he's the only way, the truth, and the life. You just figured it out. Now you just need to act. Do it today. Trust Christ today. Maybe you're a child of God. How you doing? It's a battle, isn't it? Living the Christian life. The Bible, we saw that God's at work. The question is, are we? Are you, am I? Are we at work the way God intended? Are, are we fulfilling our soul purpose? You say, well, yeah, but there's more to it than winning souls. Oh, yeah, but if you don't have the goal in mind, you'll never reach it. You better understand what your purpose is. You're an ambassador for Christ. And you know what? what, what why should I study the Bible? Why should I prepare? Why should I learn the gospel? Why should I be Christ-like in my attitude, my actions, and my outlook if there's not a purpose for it? Hey, God doesn't do anything without a purpose, and neither should we. There's a purpose for everything. When he left earth, ye shall be witnesses unto me. You wait for that Holy Spirit, but when you get him, you'll have the power to accomplish what I've called you to do. And then there'll be no excuse for not doing it. Let's not be guilty of not learning the truth, growing in grace, becoming more Christ-like. Because if we fail to do that, we will never be the witness we ought to be. But we better know where we're headed. Let's make souls our purpose too. Let's make winning others and telling others of Christ a priority in our life. And let's prepare to get it done. God's good to us. We need to be good back. 
Not because we're trying to earn our salvation, but because we're thankful and grateful for it. Let's be obedient to his final directive, command. Let's make that last one a priority in our own lives. Let's do the work that Christ begun in Genesis 1 and said to continue in Acts chapter 1. Father, we come to you. We ask your God that you would just work in our lives today. We need you, and whether we're lost or saved, we desperately need you either way. Father, we are just uh, powerless to overcome sin in our life without your presence, without your Holy Spirit, and, and without your transformation that takes place, that regeneration that can be ours. Lord, today in this room, there may be people that have yet to come to Christ, a, a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl, has yet to receive and accept the Savior as their Lord. And, their Lord. and, and Lord, that's important that they recognize the need. But then, Lord, may they repent. May they turn from themselves and quit trying to establish their own righteousness and instead depend on your righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, bless us now, we pray. And Lord, for the believer, help us to make a decision to make his last command our first priority. Father, we need you today. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Every head bowed, every eye.